Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, the passage that was read at the start of our service this morning. Again, welcome to Christ the King on this Sunday after Ascension Day. You may know that the day of Ascension is celebrated on Thursday of this past week, which is the 40th day of Easter. You heard within our passage the reference to 40 days that Jesus was with his disciples. That's the mark at which we celebrate the Ascension in the church. Uh, but at Christ the King, we, we celebrate the Ascension on the Sunday after, and here we are today. Using this familiar Acts passage, I want to talk briefly about the Ascension under three headings. First, I, I want to talk about what the Ascension means. Second, I want to talk about what the Ascension was. And thirdly, I want to talk about what the Ascension implies. What the Ascension means, what the Ascension was, and what the Ascension implies. And we'll spend the most time on what the Ascension means. When we come to the beginning of the book of Acts, we're in a moment when I think it'd be fair to suggest that the disciples are still trying to figure things out. Because nothing that had happened in the previous few weeks of their lives had corresponded to their game plan or their expectations. They had believed Jesus was the Messiah, the true King of Israel. They thought that meant that Jesus, with his extraordinary power and teaching, would rule in Jerusalem and restore God's people. After all, that was what the prophets had promised, that God would restore Israel. The nations would be judged for their wickedness. The world would be turned around at last and righteousness would fill the earth. The problem, of course, was that though Jesus had entered Jerusalem as a king, he had died there on a cross a few days later. Far from taking up his throne, Jesus had been cursed by God. It would seem Jesus wasn't the Messiah after all. Only then came Easter morning, when confounding all expectations, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so there he was, now talking as he had often done in his earthly life about a kingdom. Verse 3 of our Acts 1 passage, Jesus presented himself alive to them, to his disciples, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God of God. Which is now, I think, what the disciples are trying to figure out. How did the death and resurrection of the Christ connect to what they understood to be the kingdom of God? To begin with, it's important we realize that this phrase, the kingdom of God, needs to be linked first and foremost with many Old Testament and Jewish convictions concerning the sovereignty of Yahweh. The creator, 
the one who rules over his people Israel and the one who one day will rule in an uncontested and visible manner over the whole world. Every year on the Sunday after Ascension, we read responsively Psalm 47, and I couldn't help but be struck by the themes that emerged from it this morning. Verse 7, for God is the king of all the earth. Verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Verse 9, the princes of the peoples are gathered with the people of the God of Abraham. You hear the emphasis even in that one psalm. The anticipated kingdom of God in the Old Testament is Yahweh's kingdom. Now in his gospel, of course, Luke writes about how Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God and how Jesus proclaimed that kingdom both as a present and a future reality. Jesus understood his own ministry as bringing about the fulfillment of God's kingdom promises even as their full consummation was still in the future. Kingdom language is everywhere in the Gospel of Luke. You remember Gabriel saying to Mary of her future son, he will be great and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and of his kingdom there will be no end. In Luke 4 verse 43, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns for I was sent for this purpose. In Luke 8 verse 1, after Jesus forgave the sins of the woman who washed and anointed his feet, Luke says, soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. It's what Jesus sent his 12 disciples to do in Luke chapter 9, verse 2. He gave them power and authority, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And it goes on and on. In Luke chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus says, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the kingdom of God is understood as a present reality in Jesus' life and ministry, but it was also a future reality. Luke chapter 13, verse 29, speaking of the final judgment, and people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. We could remember Jesus' references to the kingdom in the Last Supper context as well. The kingdom of God, the Old Testament kingdom of Yahweh, was what Jesus was constantly on about in his earthly life. And within the book of Acts, we find out that this is what drives then the mission of the early church as well. Acts is all about the kingdom and Jesus being at the center of it. The very last sentence of the book of Acts, Paul is in Rome in Acts chapter 28, verse 31. And what's Paul doing? What's this all about from the beginning to the end of Acts? Finally, Acts 28, verse 31 Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You cannot talk about Jesus without the kingdom of God being front and center. 
at least in terms of what that means, even if we don't use the language all the time. Teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God are so closely associated that they're essentially interchangeable. God's sovereign rule, Yahweh's sovereign rule, had been manifest in Jesus. We see that in the Gospels as Jesus forgives sins, heals people, casts out demons, and so on. In the proclamation and in the mighty works of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Yahweh, had become a present reality, even as there was yet to come his future full realization. Only it seemed as though it all ended when it came crashing down at the cross. Do you remember Joseph of Arimathea who buried Jesus? Luke says Joseph of Arimathea was looking for the kingdom of God. Seems he had thought maybe Jesus was the one who would bring it. But you can't have the uncontested ruler of the nations dead. That was the problem. That was the scandal of the cross. Was Jesus really the king he said he was? The king they thought he was? That's where we are as Acts chapter 1 opens. And of course, the answer as we learn, not least by the ascension, is yes. Jesus was that king, and Jesus is that king. But getting all of that straight is going to take some explanation. In other words, Jesus has to appear between his resurrection and his ascension, speaking about the kingdom of God, explaining how he's a king who suffered and died, and then rose again, and how, in fact, it was that death that conquered the greatest enemy of all, and how all of that is connected to the great kingdom promises found throughout the scriptures. What the apostles needed to know and believe fully was that Jesus the Christ is the king of God's kingdom. In fact, he's God himself. And so I suggest to you that they've got the main point right when they ask their question in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, they're not questioning whether Jesus would do that, whether Jesus was the one to restore the kingdom. In fact, they now know that he is. Their question has to do with the timing. And it would seem to reveal there's something they don't quite grasp yet about the nature of the kingdom. Look at Jesus' response. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus does not deny what they say will happen. He says they can't know the timetable. It is not for you to know the times or seasons. Verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then here's the bit that I think may have surprised them the most. And you will be my witnesses 
in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Yes, the kingdom was being restored, Jesus is saying. But what the disciples had yet to grasp fully was the way in which it would be brought about. You shall be my witnesses, Jesus says, to the ends of the earth. Do you know where that ends of the earth language comes from? It comes from passages like Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 and 6, which I think is the actual passage Jesus has in view here. The prophet Isaiah promised a restored kingdom, but he also wedded that idea to the new restored Israel serving as a light for the nations. In Isaiah chapter 49 verses 5 and 6, the servant of the Lord is speaking, and he says he will bring Israel together for a purpose. Listen to these verses from Isaiah 49. Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So as one author puts it, quote, Jesus redirects their question. The disciples are thinking in regard to the consummation, the final establishment of the kingdom. But Jesus directs them away from a specific day and instead focuses on the situation that exists as a result of his resurrection. The kingdom is being restored and will continue to be restored through the coming of the promised Holy Spirit who will empower the disciples. The restoration begins now. When it ends is not for them to know. Jesus, the true servant of Yahweh, the true Messiah, will unite Israel and be a light for the nations through the witness of his spirit-empowered disciples. You know what comes next in Acts chapter 1. They appoint Matthias to be the replacement for Judas so that they are again the twelve, that they themselves are again the symbol of a restored Israel, a restored people of God that is to come. It doesn't seem to take long for the disciples to understand and to embrace what Jesus is saying here. In Acts chapter 3, while speaking on Solomon's portico, Peter urges his hearers to repent so that, Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Messiah, the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, and listen to this now, whom heaven must receive until 
the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Only by believing that that time is set by God can the disciples then go out with confidence and urgency to proclaim their king. The ascension is the declaration that Jesus the Christ, in fact, is the king they sought. He is the Messiah whose kingdom will extend to the ends of the earth. But his rule won't be quite as they expected immediately. Because now as they witness to the reality that Jesus is the king, they are to wait for the time when the kingdom is final and the whole world lives under God's just rule. Now, Jesus says, you go as my heralds, not of one who may be king at some point in the future, but of one who has been appointed and enthroned and who will come again. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 says, According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The eternal kingdom of God spoken of by the prophets will come in full, but not yet. Jesus is the world's true king. One day his kingdom will come on earth fully and finally. In the meantime, there's a job to be done. Before we consider what it means to witness to the ascended Lord today, however, I want to talk secondly in this sermon and more briefly about just what the ascension was. Look again at verse 9 of our passage. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, Luke writes, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. What actually happened there? What does it mean to say Jesus was taken out of their sight? Well, it seems to me there are two errors to avoid as we try to understand this. On the one hand, in thinking about the ascension, we, we cannot, we must not be overly literal, thinking that Jesus did some kind of takeoff into a faraway locality within the same space-time continuum in which we exist. Heaven, in other words, isn't somewhere out there in space as we know it. On the other hand, Neither can we be overly modern, if you will, thinking that Luke only means to say that Jesus is now himself somehow spiritually present everywhere and that heaven is actually nowhere at all. That won't do either. <laughs> Plenty of mystery remains, but if we take the ascension seriously as Luke records it, and you know from this morning's service, he records it in two places, both at the end of his Gospel of Luke as well as at the beginning of the book of Acts, we must think differently. At the end of his Gospel, Luke is clear that the resurrected Jesus was an embodied human being. See my hands and my feet, Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, verse 39. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus even eats a piece of broiled fish in front of them a few verses later. 
Though we do not know all the details of the resurrection body, we need to understand that after the resurrection, as one author has put it, Jesus is more than ordinarily embodied, not less than. In the resurrection, Jesus is the vanguard of a new, transformed, immortal humanity. That's the foundation on which the disciples will undertake the ministry to which he calls them. And the point is that nothing's changed about that when we come to the ascension. Jesus Christ ascended as a human being into heaven. Now, as I read the scriptures, and this will be very brief, heaven and earth, or if you like, God's space and our space, are different, but not always in the ways we think. For starters, I suggest to you that they're not far apart from one another. In the words of one commentator, heaven and earth interlock and intersect. And though for now they retain distinct identities, there's coming a day when they will join up when they will be open and visible to one another. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. You know well the moments in scripture when the curtains pulled back, at least temporarily. When the world as it actually is, in which heaven and earth do interlock and intersect, become clear. Think of Elisha seeing the heavenly army of horses and chariots all around. Think of Peter and John at the transfiguration in the presence of the glory of God himself. Think of the Lord Jesus himself standing by Paul in the night. You, you could go on. The simplest way I think I can say it is that at the ascension, we are faced with the description of the meeting of heaven and earth. Quoting from one New Testament scholar, at the ascension, a way is made from the earthly realm to the heavenly realm. How Jesus moves from one to the other is beyond our perception and experience. But it is clear that scripture speaks of heaven as a place, God's place, that will one day be joined with a new heaven and a new earth. It is a place of finality and authority from which King Jesus directs his kingdom work on earth. Friends, I know this kind of thinking doesn't come easily to us, but it is the testimony of Holy Scripture. Paul says we wrestle in our real everyday lives against forces of evil in the heavenly places. That same Paul is the one who says that in our real everyday lives, the ascension of Jesus Christ matters. Because as you heard Mike read from Ephesians, we can know the greatness of the same power that raised Jesus and seated him at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places. We can know that power that enthroned him above all rule and authority and every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. Paul's talking about the real world there, our real world. I like very much how the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it in his book, Surprised by Hope. Wright says, quote, 
We post-enlightenment Westerners are such wretched flatlanders. Although New Age thinkers and indeed many contemporary novelists are quite capable of taking us into other parallel worlds, spaces, and times, we retreat into our rationalistic closed system universe as soon as we think about Jesus. C.S. Lewis, of course, did a great job in the Narnia stories and elsewhere of imagining how two worlds could relate and interlock. But the generation that grew up knowing its way around Narnia does not usually know how to make the transition from a children's story to the real world of grown-up Christian devotion and theology. Brothers and sisters, heaven is not far away. And with heaven nearby, we wait for the kingdom to come in all its fullness. We wait because, as Peter says, we count the patience of our Lord as salvation. We wait because some do see and are saved as his followers bear witness to the kingdom and its ascended king. And so finally, how do we do this? What enables us to be witnesses to our ascended king? What does the ascension thirdly imply? The answer, at least part of the answer, is I think in verses 10 and 11 of our passage. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. According to the heavenly beings who appeared to these stunned disciples that day, what does the ascension imply? It implies that our king is coming back. That the time that the disciples asked him about in verse 6 of Acts 1 will finally come. The kingdom of God will be definitively established once and for all. The sure return of Jesus Christ is meant to give strength to carry out his will in our daily lives. The future-focused orientation in the New Testament isn't simply wishful thinking or a booster shot of hope for getting through our lives. The future is ours because Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. As one author puts it, believers may follow in the footsteps of the apostles, boldly sharing the gospel in the face of ridicule, danger, and unbelief, persevering in the face of all the unlooked-for and unwanted setbacks, disappointments, and suffering, only by believing in God's future. If we truly believe that Jesus will return just as he went up from the apostles, then through God's grace, we can, we can face whatever comes and witness to Jesus without fear. God's promises concerning the future kill any worldly fear. You see it through the book of Acts. The task of the church is the same today as it was in Luke's own. 
to find the ways of declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord. The ascension tells us that Jesus Christ rules the world, that Jesus Christ is the true Lord who calls everyone to account. We declare it as fact as we wait and pray for his kingdom to come. The message must go to all because Jesus is Lord of all. Our task is to announce him as such. Paul's accusers in Thessalonica say in Acts chapter 17, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying, that there is another king, Jesus. You will be my witnesses to the end of the earth, Jesus says to his disciples. To do it, they would need the power Jesus promised. To do it, we need that same empowering Holy Spirit. But that's our topic for next week. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.